most popular gospel hymn, that's probably it around the world. And if you watch a TV or a movie or something, if they play a Christian song or try to sing something, it's almost always Amazing Grace when they do it, even though they may make a mockery of it or they, you know, make fun of it or whatever. That's the song that they will uh, usually play. But it, what a great song! You know, those old hymns were written. Uh, kind of like the Apostles' Creed in some ways to, to kind of build theology into it and help us to understand uh, what it means to live for Christ and what Scripture says in the, the songs. It's, they're very rich if you, if you look at what they say in the hymns. Um, it's, it's a great blessing. So let's read uh, Acts chapter 1, which is our, our main text today. You want me to read that before we do the question. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. That'll be the main part of the sermon, I believe. Uh, 1, 6 through 11. Dealing with the ascensions, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. And the last thing before children are dismissed is we want to do the catechism question. And I think we're on question six. And we'd like to read this and answer it together as a congregation. Question six, how can we glorify God? By loving him and by obeying his commands and law. Children, you're dismissed. Have a good class. Be nice to the teacher. I think we're ready, Bob. Come on up and preach to us. Hmm? This week and uh, next week we'll be finishing up the uh, Apostles' Creed messages. Uh, this is our fifth message in the Apostles' Creed. And the, the part that we'll be looking at today uh, primarily is that He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there He shall come to judge the living and the dead. And I'm adding to that a brief introduction to I believe in the Holy Spirit. So that's where we are today as we look at the Apostles' Creed. And uh, 
Acts chapter 1, verse 6 kind of covers the, uh, the whole picture, but that's, that was kind of like an overall view, if you will, of what we'll be looking at today. Uh, our last message was that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell, and the third day He rose again. And as we begin today, I, I, I want to uh, read a quote that I read last week as well, or two weeks ago actually, uh, from uh, J.I. Packer's book, Affirming the Apostles' Creed. Uh, he writes, What is the significance of Jesus rising? In a word, it marked Jesus out as the Son of God. It vindicated His righteousness. It demonstrated victory over death. It guaranteed the believer's forgiveness and justification and his own future resurrection too. And it brings him into the reality of resurrection life even now. Marvelous. You could speak of Jesus rising as the most hopeful thing that has ever happened. And you'd be right. The resurrection is the heart of the gospel. Paul really stresses this in the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. And I'd like to share a few passages out of that chapter with you right now. I'm actually going to go to the middle for a moment, just verses 16 and through 19. Uh, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now, you've got to understand, there was some discussion within the framework of the, of the, the Corinthians as to whether there would be a bodily resurrection. And, and because of, of infiltration of, of some false teaching, uh, there was a denial of, of bodily resurrection. There might be something to do with the Spirit, but... And so Paul is saying, no, you know, Christ was physically raised, and let's go to and accept that. And they were willing to possibly even accept that, but no, not us, you know. Uh, but it was, you know, he says, for if the dead are not raised, that means the body of all the believers. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Why? Because Christ became a man. He died as a man. He was buried as a man. And if the dead aren't raised, he didn't resurrect. That's as simple as it can be. And so it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, we've devoted our our lives, Paul is saying, to this teaching of the resurrection of Christ. And and if He hasn't raised, there's nothing for us. The body perishes. There's no resurrection. And and, uh, it's it's hopeless. We have this life and nothing. And then nothing. And, And he says, but... I love this picture because it's you know, whenever you see a therefore or, or the word but, look carefully because it's normally going to say something great next to it. It says, but in, the, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep. You may think this way, but Christ has risen. He has risen indeed, and and He is uh, the first fruits, meaning He's the first of the physical bodily resurrection, which is a reflection for all who believe are going to follow suit in time at the second coming of Christ. Let's look at, at verses 3 through 8 in the, in the earlier part of this chapter. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul saying, he rose. The apostles all saw him. And we can go to that story, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, where he appeared to the disciples and uh, Thomas wasn't there. And then he appeared again to the disciples and Thomas was there. And, and Thomas basically said, I'm not going to believe until I touch him, and referring to his wounds especially. And what happens? Jesus reveals his hands, you know, uh, his side, he, he's, but he could be touched. And he also ate with them. Uh, he's a physical body. It's, it's a bodily, physical resurrection. This is what Paul is trying to emphasize here. Uh, and this is the heart of the Gospel. If this hasn't happened, then the rest of the Gospel isn't really good news because our sins aren't forgiven and that's what the good news is all about. It required his sacrifice and he made it. Uh, at the end of the 15th chapter, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in your Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not pointless. It's not to be pitied. Why? Because the resurrection is real. And so Paul just emphasizes that. And I... I, just thought of another scripture, and I know I've, I share it frequently, but uh, Paul writes 
uh, in Second Corinthians chapter five. We know that if this tent is that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. He's referring to something that this idea of a building from God, meaning something physical, something tangible from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is the theme of the, of, of the New Testament. The Gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came lived the life of a sinless man, was tempted in every way, died on the cross, and when He said it was finished, it meant that the sacrifice for sin, for all who believe and accept Christ, has been taken care of. Period. And so, and, and that we have a physical, bodily resurrection to look forward to, proven by His physical, bodily resurrection. The first fruits of what is to come. So, I just wanted to emphasize, the third day He rose again. Now today, we, love, uh, we look at the, the next section of the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven. Brad read from Acts chapter 1. Where, what was happening? The Apostles were standing there. They were looking up and, as they, and watching as Jesus ascended. You notice what they said. I think I've gone over this before too sometimes. But what they said before that happened, they said, okay, is it now? We're going to do the new kingdom now? Basically what they were saying is, we're going to kick out the Romans now? We're going to restore Jerusalem to the Jews? And Jesus said, you know, don't, that's not for you to even know the times about. No. And, he, and, and as He ascends, they watch. And what He had told them in reference to His ascension was that they needed to go back to Jerusalem and wait. What was going to happen? Well, that's yet to come. The day of Pentecost, the falling of the Holy Spirit on them, and then ultimately the church. And so, uh, we have He ascended into heaven physically. His resurrection body physically ascended into heaven. The Jesus who walked with them, talked with them. Like I said, He ate with them. He ascended. By the way, it's an interesting word. The word for ascended here, the definition is the process of rising to a position of a higher rank. Interesting thought. Because it says the very next thing, He sits at the right hand of God. Now, when He emptied Himself of His position, He now needed to be restored. And God has restored him. And he now sits in the position of authority at the right hand of God. That's what the right hand... You've heard about the right hand man and all that kind of stuff. That's where this ultimately comes from. But the right hand seat of God is the position of authority. All authority has been passed to that person who sits there in reference to mankind and earth. And so Jesus is at the right hand of God of the Father Almighty. Uh, well, let's look at Philippians chapter 2. 
First verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, as a member of the Trinity, he is God. He is, he is seen as God, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they are all of the same being, the same essence, but three persons. He was in the form of God, and he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Because he had it. But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He emptied himself. What was the result of what he did for us? The words, it is finished, the purchase. The offering of Himself as the living sacrifice, the purchase of our salvation. Look at what it says in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him. And He has bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is, we, we use the phrase, He is the King of Kings. We call Him also the Lord of Lords. Uh, those, uh, you know, Paul calls Him the King of Kings in 1 Timothy. John call, uh, writes of Him as the Lord of Lords in Revelation. And, and so, from where He is at the right hand of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, it says He shall come. Now we're talking about the second coming of Christ. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 24. And I just want to read a few of these verses to you. Um, verse 29 of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is talking about the second coming and the Antichrist and the signs and all these things that are going to come. And then He says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's the, 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 the picture of the second coming. And he says uh, that uh, no one knows. Verse, uh, well, go to verse 36. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. In other words, no one knows. But the condition of the world is going to be like in the days of Noah before the, the flood. And we briefly read about that in, in the first part of Genesis. 
And we really can't understand how much of an abomination it was before God in the sense of the way man had become. And it says that that's the way man is going to be. But he says, don't don't get all caught up in this as far as, oh, is this going to be next day, next week, next month? We don't know. I don't know how many pastors have uh, made the mistake of trying to calculate the end, uh, end times. And it's interesting, through the centuries, we've had groups of people from specific uh, uh, church groups sitting on mountaintops having given away everything they owned, uh, waiting for the coming of Christ. We've had people think that it was going to be 1981. 1990. Certainly, the year 2000 seemed to be perfect for it. And we are still waiting. Who knows when it's going to happen? We don't. It is an affair of God and His timing. He has already got it figured out, but it has. we're not to worry about it. We're to live our lives being ready. He says, be ready. And you know what? For every one of us in this room here today, it is in times. We have this life and what we do with it in order to determine whether we are eternally bound with God and heaven or the pit of hell. And that's we were given one life, Hebrews spells it out just so carefully, one life to live and then the judgment. So be ready. Well, uh, I think the fair question is, what must you do to be ready? And I'm going to go through a few Scriptures and share with you what Scripture says. In the book of Romans in chapter 1 it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, first thing we know is that we should be able to start by looking around us at nature and the things that God has made and realize there is a Creator. And if you argue against that and you go into all these other areas that, that, that modern science uh, over the last couple of hundred years has tried to go, uh, they still can't find what holds it all together. And that's because the Scripture tells us the Word of Christ holds it together. So, God has revealed Himself Man is to see him, and 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 so it says in in verse uh, uh, 
20, For this invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, God allowed them to have their choice. And they went away from Him. Scripture that's probably very familiar to you. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just prior to that, in the book of Romans, in verse 10, it says, It is written, None is righteous, no, not one. There's no righteous, not one. There's not one righteous human being other than Jesus Christ. The only sinless person. There isn't a person alive that can claim to be sinless. To be totally righteous. What's the end result of sin? It says the wages of sin, verse, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 23 of Romans. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are, for all intents and purposes, helplessly, hopelessly lost. We have no help. We have no access to the throne of God. We have sin. We have a perfectly righteous and holy God. And He says, in order to come into My presence, you must be holy as I am holy. We can't get there. So Jesus comes, goes to the cross, and pays for our sins. And so when we confess our faith in Christ, His holiness covers us. And we are now having access to the throne of God. I want you to read from chapter 10 of Romans. Verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There are some things that, that are expected of us that you know the Holy Spirit comes, opens our eyes to what God has said and what He has done. And as a result, we need to look at Him and, and we turn around and say, I have, I have to have a response to this. And, and my response is to confess with my mouth. He is Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one raised from the dead uh, for my salvation. He needs to be something more than confessed. You can confess anything. Where does the confession need to come from? It says the heart. And we have people who even like to tear that part apart and say, that just shows the, 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 the ridiculous enough. You know, what's, what's the heart? It's simply a pump in the, in the chest. We know that the heart is, is the metaphor because it's the center of our being. Without our heart, we have no existence. So, 
is from the center of our existence, from the very essence of our being, which I believe is our whole being. It's more than just our thoughts. Uh, we are to confess and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If we confess, if we believe, then Romans 8.1 becomes a reality for us. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the spirit, uh, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And by the way, the peace there is to be at peace with God. It's not necessarily peace in the world. It's at peace with God. So the, the world can come against Christ and threaten it. We're still at peace. If they take our life, we still have eternal life. They can't destroy me. They can take my, my tent but then I put on immortality. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Then... Just one more Scripture. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, the peace I just described, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into, His, in, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, our endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The reason why I wanted to read that part of it was to make sure that you understand. We're not talking about peace day to day in the world. We're talking about peace with God. This is what we get. So what must I do to be ready? The Scriptures I just shared with you are traditionally called the Roman road. And what they do is lead us through a series of Scriptures that tell us what we must do to be saved. We must be saved. He's coming, it says, to judge the living and the dead. As the one at the right hand of God, this is the responsibility that falls on Him now as, as the one sitting in this place, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is coming to judge. But He's not coming to judge the believer. Remember, I just read to you in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I love the last part of Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? With Jesus, give us all things. We're joint heirs with Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can point? The, in other words, who can point the finger and bring a charge? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. By the way, that's another powerful picture of dealing with who Christ is. He's our high priest. He intercedes on our behalf continuously. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We, regard, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, the, the world comes against the things of God. But it says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We're not earth conquerors. We are more than conquerors in the spiritual context. Through Him who loved us, through God the Father who loves us, through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers... By the way, here angels and rulers has to do with more with the demonic than with what you might think of in heaven in that context. He says, nor, nor rulers, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we believe in Christ, we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart and we've surrendered to Him and our salvation is in Him. There is no condemnation and we can't be pulled away from Him. I look in Zechariah chapter 3. I haven't... I mentioned it a couple of times, but I haven't read it in some time. Zechariah chapter 3 uh, is one of the most... I, I, just, I, I look at it and say, for such a brief Scripture, and coming out of the Old Testament, it's such a neat picture of us before God. Chapter 3, verse 1, it, it's... Uh, it's says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, the high priest represents the people. Now, in, in, and, and so Joshua is standing, it says, before the angel of the Lord. There are two phrases, an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. When it says the angel of the Lord, it's referring to the messenger of God, Jesus Christ. That's, all, that's what an angel is, the messenger of God. And the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, is the one who revealed God to humanity, according to John chapter 1, is Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord and Satan. So I want you to get a picture. Standing before God is Satan here. Joshua, the high priest here. And the angel of the Lord here. Okay? There's, there's this positioning here. Satan is standing at the right hand to accuse him. Now, what that means is Satan has prepared a case. 
He is the accuser. He knows the reality. He knows we have sinned. He knows we have fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, we deserve death. I could see it now. I, I don't want to think about it for me. Anybody volunteer or want me to think about it for you? <laughs> no. You know, here's Satan with an old scroll with all the things Bob Hapgood has ever done in the way of sin from the, from the beginning to the end of his life. And I'm terrified if I just think if that is all I've got to go by because I would be helplessly, hopelessly lost. So here's Satan. He's ready to present his case. Here's Joshua absolutely looking over and saying, I'm doomed. And here's the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, this is why I say it's Christ, the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Oh, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments and put new vestments on him. Redress him. And what we're seeing is a picture of a day of judgment for somebody, basically. Satan is ready to, to accuse us. But he doesn't even get to open his mouth. Before he gets to send in anything, the angel of the Lord says, I rebuke you. Silence. And he redresses Joshua in new vestments. His, and, and, and it's a picture of salvation. I think it's, a, it's a, a, for such a brief little scripture buried in, in an obscure book of the Bible, it is so awesome. So when it says that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, I really believe He's coming to... It, it, that, that that does not apply to the believer. Just a quick look ahead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. In the Last Supper, in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus said that He was going to send the Helper. Let's read those verses, verses 15 through 17. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. to be with you forever. Even the Spirit, and in most of your Bibles you will see a capital S there, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Now that doesn't happen until when? 
the day of Pentecost and the, and the starting of the church and the people now coming to Christ. And from that point on, it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit when they, when they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. And they're saved. The Holy Spirit is a part of the picture of salvation. Read, read Acts chapter 1, 6 through 8. Uh, already, uh, well, yeah, one, yeah, but I want to read again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. By the way, there's a, there's a pattern here, which is for all of us really. Witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they are. So, you are a witness here. The first place is Jerusalem and all of Judea and then Samaria and then to the end of the earth. Our, 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 our place to share Christ starts with where we are standing and wherever we go to the ends of the earth. In the book of Ephesians, chapter one, I talk about this inheritance that we share with Jesus. We're joint heirs with Him. It says. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are, uh, were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed. Locked in. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us. And He is the guarantee. Because He has sealed us and He is in us, He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is a constant reminder to us that we are of Christ, and that what God has promised us through Christ, our inheritance, is a guarantee. And nothing can separate us from it. Nothing can take that away from us. In the same chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give 
you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in also the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, under Christ's feet, And He gave Him, Christ, as head over all things to the church. Again, this right-hand seat is the seat of authority, which is His body. We are the body of Christ, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I believe in the Holy Spirit, God's gift to us, the Helper, the Comforter, sent by Christ to come along our side until we are face to face with Him again, either through physical death or rapture. And a promise that comes with that is physical death. Now, it says, death, where is your sting? In other words, where is your bite? You used to have a bite, but it's gone. It doesn't mean we don't fear death, that we don't fight against it, that we don't do the things that we can to, to prolong our lives, this type of thing. But when death approaches to the point where there's nothing left to do, the tent is finally unusable, it says we don't need to fear. Because what is mortal, this fleshly body, is going to be swallowed up by life. Not next week, not next year, but at the point of death. Period. Why? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was placed at the right hand of God in the position of all authority and He has guaranteed our salvation if we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that He is the Christ, the Son of God. Before we take communion, like to read from the book of Hebrews. In chapter 8. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of God. right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven is what it actually reads. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. It's talking about the the holy of holies. The true tent the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. But we have Jesus Christ who has offered Himself once and for all. And He is our High Priest. He stands with us 
like Joshua. And if Satan can point his finger all he wants, he's lost the battle for my soul and for all the souls who have confessed and believed. Every time we share communion, we share it with the intent of understanding what Christ has done but we need to always remember and what Christ is going to do because that is part of communion. He is coming again. And for us, it's a day of celebration. We will be dancing on the tabletops. The living and the dead that are going to be judged, they're going to be hiding. They're going to be wishing for rocks to come in and cover them. But we will be celebrating. And so as we share in communion, communion is called celebration. It's called Eucharist, Thanksgiving. And it's, and it's also a table of, 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 of time where we come and examine ourselves as well. And ask, Lord, where am I falling short still in my walk towards You? Don't, you know, don't beat yourself up. Confess your sins. Make yourself right with the Lord. Share in the communion. I'm going to uncover the trays up here and uh, this side has the packets. The other side has the communion with the top cup holding the fruit of the vine and the second cup holding the bread. So whichever you're most comfortable using. While we are singing our communion song, I'll ask you to come up and pick the communion up and take it back to your seat and hold it until we've all been served and we'll share together. Brings us 
to the Corinthians. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let us share the bread. Paul goes on, he says, In the same way also Jesus took the cup And after supper, saying, This cup is in the new covenant of My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Father, we thank You for these emblems that remind us of Your awesome mercy and Your grace and the salvation that You've poured out on us. The words, it is finished, need to ring true in our hearts constantly, Lord. Reminding us, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the One who sits at the right hand of God, who sent the Holy Spirit as our Comforter. Lord, that You have paid There is nothing left to pay. The debt is paid in full. Thank You, Lord. We worship You. We praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Before we sing our closing song, there's a ministry that you can look up if you were interested. Keep Believing Ministry. Um, It's now pastored by Ray Pritchard. And... He wrote something that uh, was downloaded and handed to me. And uh, so it ministered to me, and I would like to share it with you at this point before we close. In fact, it says, Let me close with this thought.
Because of the ascension, we may rest assured that the religion of, of Christ is true. God has accepted Him, and because God accepted Him, He will accept all those who trust in Him because He is safe in heaven. We will someday be safe in heaven. We will be where He is now. The ascension shows us how we should spend our life looking up. The story is told of a little boy who went outside on a windy day flying his new kite. And as the wind blew, the kite flew higher and higher and it eventually disappeared from view in the clouds far above. And after a few minutes, a bystander asked, how do you know the kite is still attached to the string? I can feel it tugging at the string. The boy replied, the same is true for us today. Christ is pulling us toward Him. He is pulling us away from the earth towards the eternal home. We may not see Him with our eyes, but we can feel the tug in our hearts. We know where He is, and we know that where He is, we will someday be. Every day, Jesus tugs on our hearts, pulling up toward heaven so that when we finally get there, we won't feel like strangers. One day soon the Lord will give us one final tug and we'll end up in heaven forever. Until then, let the people of God rejoice. Christ has conquered. He has won the victory and defeated every foe. This is what we mean when we say He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Amen. And then the person that handed put, put down below that, yay for Kathy. refreshments in the back. Stay and visit for a little bit. But otherwise, God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving fellowship with your family and friends, whoever you're getting together with later in the week. And we hope to see you next Sunday.
king 